0: Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week, we're discussing the new Steven Soderbergh film, No Sudden Move. The movie stars Don Cheadle and Benicio Del Toro as small-time crooks hired to carry out a blackmailing that quickly goes wrong. The cast also features a starry cast of characters that includes John Hamm, Ray Liotta, Kieran Culkin, Amy Simitz, and more. So normally we really try to stick to movies and television shows that are out in both the U.S. and the U.K., but because of the current situation, we really have not been able to talk about like any new releases, except for a couple of Marvel TV shows, for like a year and a half, and I really wanted to do this movie. So hopefully it will be out in the U.K. soon. It is currently out in the U.S. on HBO Max, and... I really, really like this movie, I'm a huge fan of Steven Soderbergh, and unfortunately Gav did not like it as much, so we're going to have a second week in a row where we're a little <laughs> bit divided. But... I mean,
1: I, I love Steven Soderbergh and I really liked the excellent ensemble cast in this movie, but I'm going to level with you here Morgan, I did not understand what was happening in this film for the middle third. <laughs> My brain was like climbing an ice cliff of understanding like, oh, pay attention, pay attention. And I, I, I mean, obviously, by the end, the final third, I think, is actually the best part. But um, no, <laughs> it wasn't like fun enough to grab my interest. But perhaps I was just in the wrong mindset that day.
0: We will definitely be discussing the fact that this movie is confusing. It is very much in the tradition of kind of noir films that the plot's confusing. Uh, I watched this- with my mother as I did with the last movie we discussed and I was wondering whether she might have a similar reaction because it's definitely confusing and like I pretty much understood what was going on the whole time but like I could not explain to you a week later what every single like twist of the plot was and when it was over she was like I love that I was like totally gripped the whole time but like you need to explain to me what just happened because (laughs) It was confusing.
1: That's kind of what I, there's like a lot of movies that I don't really understand what's happening. I mean, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a really good example, because that is like absurdly convoluted, but just really entertaining. And I think from what I gather from like kind of the general critical response to this, I think a lot of people found this funnier and more energetic than I did. I thought it was a bit more sort of gritty and lo-fi.
0: I think it's way more like a noir, like the Howard Hawks movies with like... Yeah. Um, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and there's a crime going on, but, like, they're not stealing something. I mean, technically something gets stolen, but it's not, like, an Ocean's Eleven thing where, like, a bunch of people get together to, like, raid a big casino, right? It's it's way more about the sort of betrayals and twists and turns like you yes. get in a Raymond Chandler-type adaptation. It's
1: MacGuffin-based storytelling,
0: but yes, in a good totally. way. I'm sure that our listeners are familiar with Steven Soderbergh. We will give just a brief little bit of background. Uh, He is one of the most prolific American filmmakers working slash really ever since the days of the old studio system where they crack out like two to three movies a year. He first broke out onto the scene uh, in the late 80s, I believe 1989, with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which won Sundance that year. An indie movie that was sort of a big phenomenon in the birth of, like, American independent cinema as, like, a big popular phenomenon. Obviously, there were independent movies before that time, but this was really when they became, like, a mainstream thing that, like, people were going to see and that weren't just, like, John Cassavetes, like, funding his own movies by himself that then would go on to make, like, five dollars at the box office. And that movie also is all about sex, and so that was a... got some press, too. That's a Just fantastic film. Um, And was also written by Soderbergh. And he was like 25. It won the Palm door. Maybe it wasn't at Sundance, actually. I did not bother to look this up because I'm so familiar with Stuart Soderbergh that I was like, there's no need. But he was like a kid. He was very young at that time and then proceeded to just like make a fuck ton of movies, many of which have been very financially successful since then, including, of course, the Ocean's 11 films. He famously was nominated for Best Director two times in one year, and I think the year 2000 for Aaron Brockovich and Traffic. He won for Traffic and his career has really been a combination of these like really big mainstream blockbuster type films like aaron brockovich and the oceans movies um and recently logan lucky although that didn't make very much money but it's very much in the mold of just like a big mainstream entertaining movie and then like weird little experiments that he does for himself to abuse himself He's extremely efficient.
1: Like he loves to yeah. work in a variety of genres, but most of those genres are pretty accessible, even when he's kind of making lower budget films. So like a couple of the lower budget films he's made are Haywire and the original Magic Mike, which he released in the same year. And Haywire was not a particularly big hit, but it's like a solid action movie that Morgan doesn't like very much, but I do. And Magic Mike is obviously a masterpiece that then became like this huge franchise.
0: He directed the entirety of the Nick which was on Cinemax, which the second season I didn't finish because my writing was not good. But the first season is like one of the best things I've ever seen on television. He famously like edits while he's shooting, which is how he's so efficient. Like he just clearly sees in his head what he wants to do and just does it.
1: And it kind of makes sense that he's someone that HBO would be like, yes, we will continue to move forward with this this project mid-pandemic because like, He's someone who can reliably get something done on a low budget like a mature adult, which is not the case for a lot of otherwise allegedly quote unquote successful directors.
0: Correct. And I do not know Steven Soderbergh, needless to say, but everything I've ever heard about him, from like interviews to like random tweets from actors and like crew members and stuff, is that he's just like the loveliest man and actually a professional person who is good to work with. So it makes sense that everyone would be like, yes, I will work with you. We will employ you to, like, make movies for us. And that is reflected in the absurd cast in this movie, which is just, like, 20 famous people. (laughs) Some of whom show up for, like, two scenes. Yeah. (laughs) But obviously part of that is, like, there was not a lot of stuff shooting last year, but most of them were attached beforehand. And, like, it seems like working on a Steven Soderbergh movie is, like, low stress. (laughs) not always the case with famous directors as we have said this script was also written by Ed Solomon who we discussed relatively recently Um, he was the co-writer on the Bill and Ted movies and also wrote the Men in Black films which is how he came up on this podcast for the past few months
1: he's a very fun, very mainstream film writer
0: yeah, also wrote the Now Now You See Me movies which were less successful terrible but I love them (laughs) (laughs) And Soderbergh gave a really great interview with Esquire where he talked at length about this movie along with the Oscars, which he produced recently, which kind of worked and kind of didn't, and a bunch of other things. Uh, He's always a great interviewee because he is very smart, but also just like has interesting things to say about the movie business in a way that most people who work in Hollywood don't, either because they aren't thinking about it or they don't want to say so publicly. And he does not have that problem.
1: He's very technically minded, but not in the sort of pretentious robot way that Christopher Nolan is.
0: Yes. But he gave a, a really good little description of how the movie came to be, which I thought was interesting because sometimes when you have a movie, there's a kind of mystique around the creation of a piece of art. Sometimes because I think a filmmaker really can't explain how they had an idea, right? In the same way that like when I see novelists interviewed or like if I go to a book talk and people are like, where did you get your ideas? And they're like, I don't know. Like it just happened. (laughs) Like I can't tell you. And sometimes I think because people want to like preserve the mystique and Steven Soderbergh is not interested in that. (laughs) He will just say. And I think the question was something about how this movie really fits in with a lot of other films he's done, which is the sort of like crime type film, which he's made a lot of before. And he says, That Yeah, it's the kind of movie I like to watch. It seemed like a really good opportunity to use a genre piece as a delivery system for a series of ideas we wanted to have percolating underneath the main narrative, which is an idea that we will definitely talk about later in the podcast, and that he had wanted to find a project to do to work with Don Cheadle, whom he's worked with before, of course, in the Ocean's movies. And that was sort of the origin point of this film. And then he said, I had a very basic idea that I pitched to Ed Solomon about a group of people who don't know each other and are brought together to do a job, which is a fairly standard setup. Then we talked about using that skeleton. How do we pack this with interesting layers? It all came together very quickly. Ed wrote the script fairly quickly and Warner Brothers said yes immediately. And then the production got postponed because of COVID, but they were able to get it back together uh, later in the year. But I just thought that that was a really interesting look into how someone involved in making a movie might have sort of part of an idea, and then bring bring someone else in, and then the idea sort of evolves. And then again, the origin point is that clearly he's friendly with Don Cheadle, and like they really liked working together, and so that was like the main point, as opposed to someone just like lying back in their chair and being like, "I have inspiration for my like." screenwriting art, right? Which is great, I mean, if you yeah. do that, but that's not what happened here.
1: And also because it's kind of a mid-budget movie that is largely small groups of people operating in enclosed spaces, like obviously partly for COVID reasons, but partly because it's that kind of story, it means that they can kind of pivot while filming and rewrite street scenes to kind of improve the story, which apparently they did.
0: Yeah, there was a great little bit in the interview where he's like Benicio Del Toro, whom he's also worked with before. He was the lead in both of, he did, Soderbergh did uh Che Guevara biopic that's actually two movies long, which I saw in college, um, and I don't remember very well. Oh, he was he was in Traffic. He won an Oscar for Traffic. He was saying that, like, he's just so great, and he reads the whole script and is not just thinking about his character but is thinking about the whole thing and so had like had some thought about the David Harbour character who is the person who's being blackmailed in the movie and then that got them off on some whole thing and then they rewrote something and so we talked about this when we talked about Robert Altman that like he just loved to collaborate with everyone and really his process was having the actors sort of c- contribute stuff and he really loved working with the screenwriters and that The whole sort of like melting pot of all of that stuff was how he created these movies. And you watch an Alban movie and it feels very particular because he had this particular style, but he achieved that by bringing in all these other talented people. And it really feels like Soderbergh is that way too. And you definitely get a sense in all of his interviews, but also in this one in particular, of just like a lack of ego. He just would like to have those perspectives being contributed as opposed to sort of dictating everything himself, even though, of course, he's in charge. So to kind of go into what
1: actually happens in this film, (laughs) um, it's set in 1950s Detroit, and Don Cheadle is the protagonist, but Benicio Del Toro is kind of the secondary protagonist. Um, So we meet Don Cheadle's character, who is clearly... The kind of characterization you get really early on is that he it's sort of like the plumber of criminals. Like he's someone you call in (laughs) and he's good at his job. He's not particularly intimidating, but like he's chill and professional. So a contact of his calls him in for some job with like an unnamed boss. And he's a bit paranoid about it, but he's like, okay, well, I need money. So we get in there with the first of our millions of famous people in this film, which is Brendan Fraser, who I really liked his performance in this, as I liked pretty much everyone's performance. He's like a bit of a strange lad, but not like overly idiosyncratic, some nice hand acting in there. And he explains that he's going to hire Don Cheeto for an eyebrow-raisingly large amount of money, several thousand dollars, to not kidnap, but basically babysit the family of some guy who they're going to do some crime with. They're going to blackmail David Harbour. And while the crime is happening with David Harbour elsewhere, someone needs to make sure that his wife and kids are kept as collateral. So Don Cheadle and Blanicio del Toro meet up with Kieran Culkin, who is fully Kieran Culkin in this film, as he always is. (laughs) Uh, They put on their little masks and they kidnap this average suburban family. So the mom is played by Amy Simetz, who is a regular Soderbergh collaborator and is wonderful. This is not merely a wife role. It is a wonderful Amy Simets role. She's great. Um, yeah, the son is played by Noah Joop, who's this sort of like 12, 13 year old child actor who's great and clearly has a very good career ahead of him. And that kind of is the first act of the film which introduces this like high tension situation where the, the other characters are kind of wild cards at this point because you don't really know what the crime is, like Don Cheadle has just been brought in as one cog in a machine. Yeah, so that's kind of the initial non-spoilery intro, which involves kind of David Harbour being brought out of his house by Karen Culkin to go and pick up the MacGuffin, around which the whole plot revolves. And the MacGuffin is not really revealed until the final act of the film, which is like an interesting detail and doesn't really detract from the story, because kind of the whole point is that Don Cheadle's a bit confused by everything that's happening. But yeah, that's kind of the setup for something which very rapidly evolves into another type of crime drama in the later sections.
0: Yeah, so it really is divided into three thirds, I would say, this movie. So why don't we talk about the first third before we get into more spoilery territory? And then if people want to watch the movie and not, no further developments, they can turn off the podcast. But we'll just talk about this initial setup portion first, which largely has to do with this family that's stuck in this house, which I just found tremendously enjoyable, largely because the actors are so good.
1: Yeah, it's the kind of ensemble cast where it's very actor-based, which I realize sounds ridiculous, but you basically, all of these characters are existing in the moment, you don't really learn anything about any of these characters at all. I mean, about halfway through, you kind of realize that Don Cheadle is only recently out of jail, but you don't really learn anything else because it's not relevant, And ditto Benicio del Toro, also clearly another criminal, but he's unrelated to Don Cheadle, like they're meeting for the first time. And then with this family, all you know is that David Harbour has access to this MacGuffin. But the personalities are all extremely strong because you've got these, you've got actors with strong personalities who are very good at kind of nailing down precisely what they're going for. And... Some of them naturally have kind of the energy, what you want to be bringing to this role. I feel like David Harbour, Benicio del Toro and Don Cheadle are all kind of playing to type. And then later in the film, you have like John Hamm and Ray Liotta also playing very much to type. And Bill Duke, Bill Duke is playing a crime boss in this. And when he showed up, I was like, Everyone in this film is wearing, you know, 1950s clothes because it's set in the 50s. Bill Duke shows up in a sort of 1950s crime boss outfit. And I was like, I feel like he just owns that. Like, I feel like when you hire (laughs) Bill Duke, he will show up with that as part of his options of wardrobe.
0: I feel, though, like what you're describing as playing to type is to some degree, just like they're giving really good performances. Because I don't know if Don Cheadle has a type. He did Hotel Rwanda. He did the nutty dude in the Oceans movies. All
1: right, I will do, I will remove Don Cheeto from my list, but I feel like Benicio Del Toro, David Harbour, Kieran Culkin, Ray Liotta, John Hamm, they are playing one of their types of folks.
0: I mean, Kieran Culkin, I will definitely give you. He is playing Roman Roy, except like <laughs> on cocaine. Um, not literally, but that's the energy. Even Benicio Del Toro, I think... I feel like he has two kind of modes of performance, which isn't to say that there isn't like a range within what I'm about to describe. I think he's incredible. But he either is like, I'm going to give a serious, like dramatic performance of this movie, or I'm gonna be like bug nuts insane. <laughs> <laughs> and just goes like full camp second Star Wars movie where he was just like doing a voice, like twitching his eyeballs. Um, he was in that movie with Emily Blunt like 10 years ago, The Wolfman, which I never saw. But I mean, we can I mean, all I'm, imagine. I, I don't even know anyone who's seen that. No, the I don't true, think anyone A true has. non-existent film. <laughs> I think it got nominated for an Oscar for makeup. But he definitely had, like, he sometimes will play like a big, big role like that, where he's just chewing the scenery. And then he's also like an Oscar winning superb thespian right and then he'll he'll dial it down a little bit but the film i was thinking about watching this because i think i i don't know why it came to my mind but it was sicario where he plays like the terrifying i don't remember if he's a drug lord or if he's just like an enforcer or something but he plays like the bad guy in that movie basically and there he's sort of quiet in a similar way to this movie but he is absolutely terrifying he, he kills a bunch of people. He will kill you. Like, he's really, really frightening. And in this movie, he is also, there's a kind of recessive energy. Like, Don Cheadle he's has a little bit more- self-contained
1: and intentionally not revealing his stuff about himself.
0: Yeah. But he's also pretty pathetic. <laughs> like The whole point of his character is that the other criminal mob people think that he's an idiot, which he kind of is. Not quite as much as they think, maybe, but like he definitely is is dumb,
1: and he's in a secret relationship. He's he's like sleeping with someone else's wife, who is played by Julia Fox.
0: Yeah, he's <laughs> sleeping with like the mob boss's wife. Yeah, which is <laughs> the mob boss's tremendously sexy stupid. wife, Julia yeah. Fox. I only
1: made it 20 minutes into Uncut Gems because I find gambling too stressful, which I realize makes me a baby, but I'm not watching Uncut Gems. However, she is the breakout of that film, and this is her second respectfully very sexy role.
0: <laughs> I I must confess, I thought she was not very good in this movie. Sorry to Julia Fox, she's good in Uncut Gems, but I found her unconvincing in this. It's was like, maybe, maybe you had one role in you, we'll see what happens in the future. But, um, Anyway, but Isil del Toro in this movie should not be sleeping with that woman, like, very stupid. And I just think that you can tell so much of what's going on in his head, even though it's all kind of going on in his head and not being spoken aloud. And I was also thinking, watching that performance, like, he's he's a racist, so he's being forced to work with this black guy whom he doesn't know before the start of the movie. He doesn't like that and says some like explicitly quite racist things. But I think the movie is really smart in not trying to make him like either a heroic or a like villainous character. It's not like he says racist stuff and then it's like and this is the terrible racist monster who we can't wait to you know kick off the screen. He's just kind of this like Casually racist. He's
1: casually racist.
0: Yeah. And he's just kind of, they're they're all kind of just sad, right? Like the whole thing is kind of pathetic. And I think what he has as an actor, which is the case with so many like great movie stars, is there's just an element of watchability about him that even when he's playing someone where you're not like, I don't like you, but I just want to watch you because there's just something about his face that I just find magnetic, right?
1: I mean, also, this is a great face movie because it's 100% character actors, so there's only like one hot person. <laughs> yes.
0: <laughs> and he's he's had that craggy face for his entire adult life, as we were also discussing the other day. <laughs> yeah,
1: when I watched the movie, I was like, Morgan, is it just me or has Benicio Del Toro been 50 for the past 20 years?
0: <laughs> really does feel like that. But I just I think that that's a huge plus to the movie. Cheadle is nominally the main character and And I think he's great in the film, too. Like, he's a great actor, but it really is an ensemble movie, functionally speaking. I don't know how much more screen time he has than Amy Simons, but, like, it's not that much.
1: For me, Amy Simons is, like, the MVP. She's my fave.
0: I loved her. I think I've seen her act in stuff, but not that much.
1: She was in The Girlfriend Experience, which was uh, Steven Soderbergh's TV show. Yes. And last year she did this experimental film called She Dies Tomorrow.
0: Yes. So she directed that, which is, I think of her more as a director. Um, she acted in Upstream Color, which the guy who directed that is is bad. So we don't need to go into that. But that was how I first sort of came came to yeah. be aware of her. And she is very good in that movie. She's directed several films. And that's kind of how I have her in my brain now is as a director, but obviously she also acts. And she is just incredible, this movie. She is so unbelievably funny. And as you said, when You were mentioning that it's not just a, like, sort of wife role. I think the script, to me, she's the sort of biggest accomplishment of the script, which I really thought was smart and good. We can argue more about that when we get more into the plot, but it would be so easy for that part to just be, like, flat and uninteresting, right? And she doesn't feel, like, anachronistically progressive or sort of, like, in a feminist way like self-realized not that there weren't women in the 50s who were that way but like a housewife of this type perhaps would not have she's that literally a detroit brain,
1: housewife right? whose husband is david harbour who's cheating on her with a secretary so right
0: <laughs> but she doesn't feel like a character. she feels like a real person who despite being of that time is also like really bothered by the stuff that's going on and really concerned about her children and it's really, really funny. Like, she's the funniest part of the movie, for sure. <laughs> There's a great line she has that I can't say because it, I would have to spoil stuff to explain it, but where she's, like, basically trying to lie to the police. And it is so hilarious that I just burst out laughing. And, like, her delivery, perfect. I, yeah, I just thought she was fantastic. She does a great accent, sort of, like, Fargo-type accent in the movie. Phenomenal. I loved it. And very fun to see her with Noah Jupe, the leading child actor in Hollywood, who has played the child of, like, every major actor at this point. He play- I mean, he doesn't have, like, a ton to do in this movie, but every time I see him in something, I'm just like, you are so preternaturally talented, it sickens me. <laughs> like, this is-, this is too much. But I think we should get into what happens during this sort of holdup. Hard to go much further in the movie without explaining this.
1: yeah. So, like, the mystery boss calls up and tells Kieran Culkin, who's, like, the one of the three criminals who actually knows what's going on, tells him to basically just kill everyone because David Harbour has not been useful in retrieving this MacGuffin from his office. So, like, they're like, just kill them. And Don Cheadle figures out what's happening and shoots him. So now we have a situation where there is a dead criminal in this suburban house. David Harbour has now implicated himself in some kind of crime which no one really fully understands yet. So they have to like lie to the police to cover up precisely what happened here. They pretend it's like a home break-in and Amy Simons takes the kids to her friend's house. And that's where we kind of get into the main section of this juggling act for trying to get hold of this, this MacGuffin, which is kind of some kind of document. And this is the point where it gets all quite complicated and I started getting confused, Morgan.
0: <laughs> I was not as confused as you, clearly, because I enjoyed it more. I was thinking about, as I mentioned, the sort of Hawks movies from the 40s, like The Big Sleep, which famously is like, I mean, The Big Sleep is incomprehensible. Does not make sense.
1: I'm happy to not understand a film as long as I'm enjoying it. And I think that the problem here was that I just wasn't yep. having much fun.
0: It's just a matter of taste. At that it's point. vibes. It's all vibes. <laughs> I found it just like tremendously enjoyable. And I think at any given point with like, Concerted thought, like, could explain what was happening. It just took effort to be like, okay, that guy's connected to that guy. Well, basically, what's going on is that Liotta plays like the mob boss who's ordering this, and they're kind of trying to evade him, and then trying to run the thing themselves, right? Like, they're trying to get a hold of this document and and sell it to the person who wants to buy it. Without going through the mob boss, which is obviously a very dangerous proposition because he's a mob boss, so so that's a problem. Additionally, Benicio del Toro was sleeping with his wife, so that adds a layer of complication that's like not helpful. In addition, Don Cheadle has like a hit out on his head from like the black mob in the city because he has just gotten out of jail, and they say at some point that like he had stolen like the numbers book from. I don't know if it's Bill Duke or, like, someone else. And the numbers, basically, for people who don't know, was, like, an unofficial lottery system in America at this time that was, like, primarily, like, in African-American and other, like, minority communities Um, and was a way that, like, the mob moved around huge amounts of money without sort of being detected. And so to have that book would be... That's, like, a lot of information that they obviously want from him that he really shouldn't have as, again, as you put it, the plumber of the mom. (laughs) So they want him and then meanwhile they've got this document that like is worth a lot of money. They don't really understand why it's worth a lot of money. So they're trying, they like go to somebody and try to sell it and are like, ooh, $30,000, like that's a lot of money. And then ultimately at the end of the film, they get in touch with like the highest up person. And that guy is like, oh yeah. So the initial price was like $125,000. And Don Cheadle's like, yes, correct. That is what we agreed.
1: (laughs) There's also like a great scene kind of partway through where they really hang a lampshade on like the point in any crime movie of this type where like the smart move is to just cut and run even though potentially you can win more by risking more. And of course these people are not going to risk less. So like Del Toro and... Don Cheadle, are like, no, we're going to go as far up the food chain as, they can, as we can. And it's like, how's that going to work out for you, narratively speaking, in any crime film?
0: Right. So the movie is obviously like really connected to these movies from, I would say, the 40s in particular. Of course, there were crime films earlier than that, but this, it really felt connected to these noir movies, which are often like critical of capitalism in some way. And the film that I was thinking of particularly, which isn't exactly a noir, but is sort of affiliated with the genre because it stars Humphrey Bogart, um, is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which is all about a guy who just can't accept that he should stop at some point. <laughs> like, just take the all the gold that you've got and, like, go build a house or something, right? Like, you've, you're rich now. And the, like you know, rapacious American need to have more and more and more and more, which doesn't work out in that movie, and it does work out in this movie, or indeed in any film. That's because capitalism doesn't work that way. Which
1: is very explicitly what we discover in the final act. Shall we talk about the big kind of speech in the final act that you mentioned earlier?
0: Yeah, let's just go for it.
1: So the one thing this film has in common with Interstellar is that, <laughs> is that it delivers a very unexpected and unannounced uh, Matt Damon cameo at the 11th hour. <laughs> so Matt Damon shows up in the third act as kind of the big business boss at the top of this food chain of potential people that they can extort. At this point, it becomes clear that what um, what the document is is plans for the catalytic converter. And all of these people are working for different car companies and they want to keep the plans for the catalytic converter secret because they want to make money instead of making cars safer, which is something that has happened in various different ways in the American car industry. But Matt Damon shows up to deliver a wonderful monologue. This was definitely a high point of the film. This is the point where I started like paying attention again. Uh, <laughs> but um, he kind of explains very explicitly, but not in an overly preachy way, just the wonders of how he's the top dog in the world of capitalism and like he's always going to get more money and he's not really that bothered that he's going to have to pay out like at this point like 300 grand to these extortionists because he's like oh it's just like cutting the tail off a lizard it just grows back like he makes money by doing nothing because he's this rich business guy and it's kind of it also like at this point weaves more explicitly into kind of the context of like the setting in general because we already know there's like pollution is harming people in urban centres, there's like redlining happening, the main character's are working class. Like the protagonist is a black guy in Detroit who's just come out of jail, and now there's just this like smug white guy in his like fake Tudor castle coming out of golf to be like, "Well, here's some money. Give me that. Those plans. Uh, I'm gonna stay rich. You're gonna be slightly rich. And the great thing is that now everyone's gonna be hurt by pollution for the next twenty years because I'm not gonna make the cars safe. And it's like, oh, you've got a lot going on here then." <laughs>
0: Yeah, this was the point at which, like, I was enjoying this movie the whole time, as as we've discussed, but at this point, I was just like, oh, we're on another level now. (laughs) Like, excellent. Matt Damon and Sarderberg, obviously, long time, long time buddies. So I had no idea he was in this, and I was delighted to see him appear. Slightly less surprising than in Interstellar, where you're just like, what the fuck is going (laughs) on? like, Like, why is he? What? (laughs) Just like in current um, movie culture, because everything gets spoiled and memed online so much it is really rare to have that moment where you're just like oh a major movie star is in this film and I had no clue so like that was just fun and um Matt Damon is a very good actor so he's very good in this role as just like an asshole and in this interview with Soderbergh we were mentioning at the beginning of the podcast he says that one of the things he said to Ed Solomon when they were first coming up with the idea for the movie was, I want it to culminate with our version of the Ned Beatty scene in Network, where a character that we haven't met just hijacks the movie for 10 minutes with this giant monologue. I want it to lead to that. Ed's like, okay, and he starts reverse engineering the plot, so we have our Ned Beatty scene from Network. And then he references another movie too. And Again, I love the idea of just being like, okay, like I have this in my head and I want it to end that way and we're going to sort of like back, work backwards. And I think that like sort has been doing this with quite a few of his movies recently, but this is one of the most sort of explicit examples where he makes these movies that are like these sort of slick, mid-budget, just like really classical Hollywood, you know, like pieces of entertainment even if you didn't find it that fun, like I did, and it's clearly intended to be enjoyable, right? As opposed to like a meditation on capitalism. Yeah. Right.
1: This is this is like a classic kind of dad movie.
0: And then there's sort kind of like a revelation that happens in the end, where you realize that the movie is actually about sort of like again, the just like ugliness of of capitalism. And specifically cars in this case, which I of course was just like yes cars are bad we should talk (laughs) about it more and it felt incredibly cleverly done to me in this case because the whole structure of the movie is such that you start off with these guys at the beginning who are just these sort of pawns i have no idea what's going on but they're offered what seems to them to be a ton of money and i mean five thousand dollars in the 50s is a lot of money and then the sort of, like, super structure of this whole system slowly becomes revealed to them. Like, in the middle part of the movie, they're dealing more with, like, the who we find out is the middleman, the Ray Liotta character who's, like, the mob boss, but he's not actually in charge either. So, like, he has a ton more money and seems to have power, but actually he's really just the, like, functionary for the Matt Damon character who's actually the person with, like, real power in this situation. And to him, this whole, like, sort of sorry tale that we've been watching the whole time is, like, whatever. It's an inconvenience. Right, exactly. (laughs) It's so insignificant and meaningless to him. And I just found the way that all built up to be incredibly satisfying and smart. I do think the movie is a little bit overlong and probably could have used, like, one more draft of the screenplay. Like, it works so fast now that you know, you're, it's, everything's going really quickly. But overall, I just, I found the whole thing really satisfying because I both had the experience of, like, I'm watching a movie I'm really enjoying, but then also was made to, like, think about it at the end, which is nice. It's nice to have something that you're thinking about after watching a film. And, of course, you know, none of the characters gets what they want. Like, everybody in this movie is betraying everybody else yeah. which
1: I mean the the finale of this film is like all of the money just ends up back with Matt Damon
0: <laughs> yeah and that again is sort of a reflection of the like rottenness of capitalism right That like you don't have meaningful
1: human relationships
0: because everybody is so fixated on on the money and Benicio del Toro is got this relationship with this woman whom like he thinks he's just so in love with her and she only cares about the cash like he may, he walks out with most of the money because Don Cheadle gets taken away by the mob and they she, he and Julia Fox drive off and she like shoots him and runs off with the cash and then the cash, cash gets taken away from her too so it's this sort of like labyrinthine process by which it eventually winds up with with Matt Damon and we haven't mentioned John Hamm at all who plays the cop who's who's investigating this and one, again, one of the moments I just found so satisfying in this movie is that he kind of runs into the the mob in like the you know, basement or the parking garage or something of of this building where they've just met with Matt Damon to sell him this this document, but cheadle has been taken away instead. And he wants to arrest him for the murder of Karen Culkin. And Bill Duke is like, Well, look, you could take him and he could go to prison and it could be this whole long thing, or like we could just take him away and shoot him and like give you some money instead. And John Hamm's like, yeah, I'll just take the money. Like that sounds fine. <laughs> and so he kind of orchestrates getting all the money back and takes it up to Matt Damon and clearly thinks he's going to get a like, cut. Right. Like it clearly has been sort of implied to him that that's, what's going to happen because you know, as the police, he's like working with the, this business and Matt Damon's just like, oh yeah, take like a fancy bottle of wine.
1: <laughs> well, it's like, not just that. He like ends up giving extra money to Matt Damon. Because yes. at some point there's been like an extra 50k that's been like folded into this stack of cash as a bribe for someone. And yeah. he like, and like John Hamm is like, oh, there's also this extra extra 50,000. So he just gives it to Matt Damon. So Matt Damon has like made a profit from this enterprise. So yeah. it's one of those crime movies where it's working on a very kind of familiar sort of crime drama framework with this kind of ensemble cast and all of these betrayals and stuff but then kind of the finale is like what is crime anyway? (laughs) Because obviously like Matt Damon is going to like kill millions of people by like poisoning their lungs.
0: Yes and again like you mentioned this but the fact that this takes place in Detroit feels like so pointed and significant because that city has just been totally ravaged and is the hub of the car industry in America, of course, um, which is the more like straightforward textual reason. But uh, yeah, Don Cheadle winds up with $5,000, which again is like a lot of money, but it's not the 130 that he had dancing in his head. Yeah, I just found the end so satisfying. And cars are bad. Take public transit. <laughs> so. Next week, I believe we will be discussing Loki.
1: Yeah, The Loki finale will be airing next Wednesday. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about it.
0: (laughs) You'll be shocked to hear that we'll have some negative things to say about Loki.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've been covering Loki in detail, as is my job. Yes. And it is interesting to kind of be covering this show more than any other TV show, while also reviewing other TV shows. And obviously there's kind of good things and bad things about all of these Marvel products. But the main thing that's sort of enthralling to me about Loki is like literally how little is happening in this show. (laughs) Like how little happens per episode. And you kind of almost don't notice because like the production values are very high and it stars someone really famous. And then you're like, oh, okay, right. There's like most of the dialogue is people explaining stuff and not much plot has happened. But anyway, we will discuss the show in depth. We're both big fans of Tom Hiddleston when he's getting a good job, and we both love Loki as a character. But um, the TV show, we'll see what happens with the finale, but we have uh, mixed feelings.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the story of Marvel coverage on this podcast, is that we feel compelled to do it every few months, and then <laughs> are just like, this is bad.
1: So... We're not doing an episode on Black Widow unless someone specifically pays to request it on Patreon. (laughs) Correct.
0: But anyway, thank you, of course, as always, for listening to this. To reiterate, it is on HBO Max in America and hopefully will be widely available elsewhere. Uh, If you would like to support us on Patreon or listen to our recent bonus episode on Victor Victoria, which is up there now. You can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online?
1: You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at behind the scenes.
0: And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxed at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.